Good morning. This is a reading from the prophet Amos, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, found on pages 764 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam and the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, excuse me. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, good morning, guys. It's good to be back. Uh, Laura and I have been um, in and out over the past uh, month or so. Um, in case you didn't know, uh, we had a baby. Um, so Bryn is now, we're going into week six. Uh, you guys can be praying for us. Uh, tomorrow she has a procedure uh, to uh, fix her tongue tie and lip tie. Uh, what those do for a baby is uh, she's ultimately healthy, and this is like an immediate resolve, uh, but it makes for um, an unhappy child in the meantime uncomfortable. And so you guys can be praying for us as uh, we wrestle through just being new parents in general and then having a, a lack of sleep. Uh, that goes beyond what I think is normal. Uh, so be praying for Bryn, uh, that uh, the recovery is swift, and uh, for Laura, that she can get some rest. Um, but that's like a quick update on us. Overall, spirits are high, energy's low. That's where we're at right now. But, uh, but this, uh, this week, we're going to be entering into a new study that we're going to be in for the rest of the summer, and we're going to go through the book of Amos. I think it's really relevant um, to our world today. But in order for us to understand how relevant it is, we have to understand the book and the context of the book. And so uh, first I have a question for you. Does anyone know what this is called? Anybody know what this is called? Shout it out if you know. I, I did not know. It's called a Sneller's chart. Apparently that's the guy who invented it. What a wonderful last name, Sneller. But this is a Sneller chart, and we're all at least familiar with what this is, right? It's what we use to test our eyesight and determine just how well we can see. And so what happens when you look at one of these is we learn about ourselves just how well we can see the things that are either up close or things far away. And when we take one of these tests, we learn something about how well we can see. For many of us, we learn that we actually require corrective lenses if we hope to ever see the details that our natural eye would miss. And I think in a lot of ways the Bible can be like this chart. Oftentimes there's things that seem obvious and we don't need any help to see them, like that E on the top of the chart. But the, but the further removed we are from the culture and historical context of a passage, the harder it becomes for us to see some of the details that God has placed there for us. And I think this is true, like just in, in general. Like when we hear stories about something that happens before our lifetime, we understand them differently than those who experience them hands-on, who were close. And I don't even think we have to go back that far in history, and distance does the same thing. Like where we live in space and when we live in time affects how we see the world, and so it naturally affects how we understand it. 
And it's hard for us to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. It takes work to see things from someone else's point of view. The further away we are from something, the lower it is on that chart, the more difficult it is for us to see the details. And so this morning, for the rest of the summer, we're going to be in the study on the book of Amos. And if we placed it on the Sneller's chart, it would be real low on the diagram. Amos is a book written nearly 3,000 years ago to a specific people with very different culture than our own on a completely different continent. And beyond that, it's written in a genre that's extremely foreign to us today, primarily being a book of prophecy. And so today, what I hope to do is construct a pair of corrective lenses that we can put on to help us read this book and understand all the beautiful details that God has placed in this message for us to see. And it's my hope that as we look at the historical and cultural context of this time today, that we not only realize the value that it has for this book, but for every time we approach God's word. So that we would consider the kind of approach that we need seeking to understand all the things that God has placed in his word. And that we consider using and building constructive or corrective lenses every time we enter into interactions with anyone, recognizing that there's a distance between our experience and theirs. So listen, this is, uh, this, this summer and, and for the rest of the book, this is what we're going to be doing. And if, 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 if we consider anything as we enter into this morning, l- listen, it's something I've said to you before and you'll probably hear again. Like human beings, you and I are historically bad at seeing or determining what's right and wrong on our own. Like, details are fuzzy for us. It's the story of the garden that when we choose to trust what seems good to us instead of what God says, it often leads us astray. What seems good to us is rarely good for others. And so in starting this book together, I'm sure we'll find examples of people being led astray by the same temptation, not realizing how nearsighted we can be. And for this morning, I want to take us through a brief history of Israel, looking at a few of its kings and how their decisions to reject God's way and his calling for what seemed best to them led an entire nation astray. And then I want to look at the message that God brings to these wayward people and the kind of messenger he chooses to use to do so. And so with that said, let's begin our study in Amos actually by turning first to 1 Kings chapter 11 and to look at King Solomon. So listen to this. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign wives along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidon, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination, uh, abo- uh, the abo- ab- guys, 
abomination of Moab, and Molech, the abomination uh, of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. All right, we made it through. So in Solomon, we see the direct descendant of David, the man who asked God for wisdom and was granted it, turn from God in pursuit of things like women and power and other gods. And not only did he turn to other gods, but he put in place the infrastructures that would set the path for others away from Zion, away from Yahweh. And even more heinous than that, and specific to today, one of the gods Solomon worshipped, Molech, took the form of a cow. All right, so, so that will matter later. But for now and for us, here's what I want us to consider. Here's the question. What are the blessings God has promised to us? What calling has, have you ignored to pursue what you think looks better? Put differently, what has divided your heart? For Solomon, it was these things like women and power and literally other gods. What is it for you? What has God promised to you? What calling has he placed on your life that you've ignored to pursue the things that you think look better? Is it your position at work? Do you value your obedience and standing with your boss more than your maker? Maybe it's your position in the family. Is being the one in power at home more important to you than being a good partner or parent? Or maybe you worship comfort and security. Maybe giving your finances to be generous is really hard for you. There are so many things that can steal our attention and affection. What are they for you? What have you turned into new gods? And worse, if you're in any kind of leadership, what infrastructures have you built that are leading others to worship them instead of Yahweh? And so again, parents in the room, listen, the things that you make priorities in your house will impact your children as adults and as parents of their own. So be careful what you value and what altars you take them to for worship. Because if you don't, here's what will happen. Verse 9, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And he commanded him concerning these things that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I'll tear it out of your, the hands of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I'll give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So God made promises to his people that he intends to keep regardless of their failures. And he will continue to uphold his word even when we fail to follow him God is a God of his word. However, God will take responsibilities away from us when we fail to steward them well, and that can influence and include our households. So church, are you hearing me? There are genuine things at stake when we fail to follow our heavenly father. And I fear too often we take this for granted. But this warning is for for us, and it's all over the Bible, stewardship is a principle taught throughout the Old and New Testament. It matters how we treat what we've been entrusted. 
So back when I was a youth pastor, there was a season in our ministry when it just absolutely exploded. It went from about 15 students to like 60 in a matter of months. And then it stayed that way for something like three years. So just think about that for a moment. Between students and leaders, the youth group um, that was entrusted to me was like the size of our entire church here. And in those years, God did some really miraculous things. High school students wanted to come to church. Every week, we had what was called family dinner together, and people from our church volunteered to make meals for these kids. Students came to Christ. We had a baptism service with something like 12 kids who shared their testimonies, and and their families and friends came, and the sanctuary was packed with all these people who came to see and hear, and it was amazing. And at the same time, I was like barely 22, and I was wildly underprepared to handle that growth. And so what happened was somewhere along the line, my priority shifted from simply following God to fabricating like what I thought was going to be the coolest or the biggest or the best youth group around. It went to my head, and when that happened, I no longer was worshiping at God's altar, but I began building my own. And so soon after that, as quickly as this thing exploded, it imploded, it crashed down, and I had absolutely emptied the tanks of my leaders. I invested all my energies into trying to like win over or woo these lost kids as as if that's something that I can do, and I neglected the students that were there who wanted to be discipled. And so I failed as a leader. And I began to lead people off course. And listen, not because I had completely forsaken God, but because I wasn't wholly following the Lord like David did. And so God took that kingdom from me. And so he didn't just, he didn't completely take away my position as a pastor there. He didn't change the calling that I had, but instead he gave me the chance to learn from these epic mistakes that I made. And then he allowed me to train up a new leader so that they wouldn't follow in my footsteps, but in his. Somebody who would remain faithful in areas that I couldn't. So God was so gracious to me that I now have a great relationship with that new youth pastor who I got to train to take over the reins. And he's doing an amazing job. And, And I don't know the numbers there. They don't really matter. But what does matter is that ministry is doing better than it ever has. And his focus with these kids is always where it needs to be. And so church, don't make the mistake that I did. Not with your family, not with your job, not with your comforts, whatever it may be. Check your hearts. Look at where you're willing to make sacrifices in your life and what for. And make sure that you're standing before the right altars of worship. Solomon failed to do so and it cost him the kingdom. His actions, it literally split Israel in two. And God gave his nation to another as he said he would. So listen to this, 1 Kings 11, 31 through 38. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hands of Solomon, and will give you ten tribes, because they have forsaken me, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. 
when our hearts are divided and we begin to follow after what looks good to us instead of what God has spoken and called us to, there are real consequences. Houses split. People get hurt. And for Israel, soon after Solomon died, Jeroboam indeed took over as king over northern Israel. But unfortunately, he, like so many of us so many times, was nearsighted and chose to follow the path that seemed good to him instead of pursuing the path that God had called him to. So look with me as we enter into chapter 12, verses 26 through 33. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if the people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calf gods, and he said to the people, you have gone up to Israel long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set, set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then these things became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. And he also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast of the 15 days of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So Jeroboam was given the literal keys to God's kingdom. God transformed him from a servant to royalty. And yet his own fears and lust for power led his heart astray. And in that, he chose to rewrite Israel's history by building altars to gods in the form of more golden cows. What is with us and golden cows? <laughs> and, and, and listen, in one regard, we don't actually know who these gods are. Like, we don't know what was up with the golden cow thing. But there's a few options for us uh, for who these gods may have been. Perhaps it was that Canaanite Molech who Solomon worshipped. Perhaps it was El, another Canaanite god. Maybe Jeroboam was influenced by his time in Egypt where there's um, yet two more cow-shaped gods who were prevalent, Hathor and Apis. Um, we don't know. But what we do know is that this man was given immense blessings and gifts directly from God, and yet he took the gifts and the gift giver for granted. He tried to take God's gifts but reject God and his guidance. And instead, he rewrote his and his people's history for what looked good to him, what he had devised in his own heart. And church, we do this too. We forget that God gave us our families and instructed us how to lead them. We forget that God has provided us homes and finances, yet we regularly forget that all these came from him, who like a good father gives good gifts. And so in our amnesia and our nearsightedness, we look inward as if we alone accomplished these things. And we begin to fear that we alone must plan how to keep them or protect them or amass more. And in that, we rarely, if ever, ask God how he wants us to use that which he's provided. Because we forget 
that he was the one who provided them in the first place. And again, parents, our children are watching us and what we value. They're taking note, unconsciously or not, of what we prioritize, what we celebrate, and what we rely on. And so the idols which we worship will impact the generations that come after us. Jeroboam grew up serving under Solomon, and when he came to power, he began to lead the same way that he was led. Jeroboam, like Solomon, ignored God's calling to pursue what they thought looked better, and it led them to golden calves, false gods who gave them nothing, but instead took their eyes away from the Lord, which eventually lost them everything that mattered. So where have you forgotten God and replaced him with a golden cow? What do you esteem as a source of blessing in your life? Is it your own wisdom, thinking that what's devised in your heart is good? Is it a political leader thinking that they care about you and that they're the ones who can save you or this country? Is it your wealth, your family, your name, your own righteousness? What is the golden calf you have created and worshiped? What have you put in the high places in your life? Listen, these things will not make good on their promises. They will take your eyes away from the Lord. They will steal away all that God wishes for you to have as good gifts from him. And so as you continue to, to read of Jeroboam's reign, you learn that just as God did for Solomon, he does for Jeroboam. He, in fact, takes the kingdom away from his family. When people are nearsighted and ignore God's calling and guidance, we inevitably start pursuing the things that look good to us. And eventually we replace the Lord with other things, golden calves. And when we're no longer following God and stewarding the things he gives us well, he takes them back and entrusts them to those who will use them wisely and for God's purposes and plans. Jesus teaches us clearly in many of his parables this point, and yet even still, God is so gracious and faithful to his promises that though he'll take back much that he's given, he never takes away anything that was given by a promise. It's why Solomon remained in power until his death. It's why David's family held on to Judah. And it's why 200 years later, northern Israel still stood. God will take things away if we're irresponsible with what we're stewarding but he won't take away anything that he's given by a promise. So jump with me to 2 Kings chapter 14, 23 through 27, where we'll finally get to the days of Amos, and we'll look at one more king, namely Jeroboam II, no relation. So it says this, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, that's northern Israel, and he reigned there for 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Joash. So under Jeroboam II, Israel continued in their rebellious ways, forsaking God for their, uh, the God of their land for the same golden calves. But despite that, God, um, though ignored, continued to uphold his promises. And he even worked unbeknownst to them through this wicked leader. 
to continue to uphold his promises and to save his people. We won't get too deep into this today, but for for now, all we need to understand about this time is that in Jeroboam's 41 years, northern Israel reached its most prominent season. Like it became a place of peace and prosperity under this wicked leader, but it was unbeknownst to them that it was through the power and the interworkings of God. And and so it became this place of prosperity. Much like today, there was an elite class And unfortunately, much like today, a nation's judged most often off of its most successful, even if that's only the smallest minority of the population. But the thing that I want to see in all of this for today, in all of this history, is just what kind of God our God is, despite what kind of people we can be. That despite our rebellions and poor vision to see, He stays faithful. When we ignore his callings and run after idols made of silver or gold, he remains steadfast. And he gives us the freedom to choose to follow him or not. We're not coerced into worship, but we should be compelled because of the great and patient love which he continues to show even in the face of our rejections. And so with the short time I have left, I want to finally open to the book of Amos, looking at verse 1 and 2 to see how God depicts himself and what message he brings to the people who have lost sight of their true God and strayed so far away. And so we're going to be in Amos chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It says, The word of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. So given the history that we looked at in these three kings, in just these two short verses, so much is communicated. And so here we find a God who's a roaring lion standing on Mount Zion at his temple in his capital city as he mourns so deeply that its waters dry up. And so in order to appreciate the vivid picture that's here, again, we must put on those corrective lenses uh, to understand like the history that led Israel to this place and, and the climate in which God is speaking. And so first, lions were once prevalent in Israel. Uh, so this picture wouldn't, wouldn't have been uh, difficult for them to understand. It would have been higher on that Sneller chart. They would have seen it more clearly than we do today. But listen, lions roar. This, I, I Googled this, so it's true. Lions roar for a few reasons. First, Lions roar to lay claim over what is theirs, to mark their territory. Lions roar to warn potential threats of their presence and to tell them to tread lightly. And finally, lions roar to call their pride home when they've strayed too far away. Second, shepherds were extremely common in Israel and serve as a a significant motif all through scripture, from Abraham to Moses to David and more, all these people, shepherds. This was a job that not only served as a picture of much for God's people, but more practically, it was a source of food and provision for the people. 
So shepherds mourn when their pastures are bare and their sheep are starving because it means that our food source is going to soon wither as well. If our food can't eat, we can't eat. And then finally, Mount, Mount Carmel, um, it had springs that were a significant source of water, being one of the only sources of water during the three-year drought and famine during the prophet Elijah's day. So if even the waters of Carmel are withering, we know that the land is truly in a bad way. And so here's what we see in just these two verses, that God, this powerful lion, is standing just outside the doors of his temple, looking across the land which he's claimed as his home for him and his people. And it's barren and empty. His pride has strayed so far away they may have even forgotten or forsaken him. And so here, and with sadness in his voice, God cries out for his wayward family to come home. And so this is the message and the calling that we'll be exploring in depth in the rest of this summer, in the rest of this series. Church, God has been crying out, roaring to his people to come back to himself in all the areas that we've been distracted and gone astray. He wants, like he did from David, a people who are wholly devoted to him. And he won't force it. He will let us wander. But for those who listen to his voice and who follow him home, he has blessings and gifts and responsibilities he wants to entrust to us so that we can participate with him in ruling this kingdom home that he wants so desperately for us. He wants, to work, he wants us to work with him to make this place not a place of mourning or withering, but a place of life and life to the fullest. And so I don't know what the golden calves are for you in your life. I can't tell you what you worship, but I can tell you that we all do this. We all make golden calves somewhere I do this all the time. And every time we do, God mourns and he calls again for us to come back home. So God is a lion roaring for his family. How will you respond? Listen, if you're here today and you think that you've strayed too far or that God no longer wants you, can I tell you he does? He, his call is for you. And if you're here this morning, it's not too late. It's never too late. Return to him. And if you're here and you've been worshiping at another's altar, listen, your God is not of metal or silver or gold. He's not a cow, that, uh, but he's a living lion with power. And unlike those false gods, he makes good on all of his promises. So church, don't ignore God's calling. Listen to his voice by his word and by his spirit. Seek him out when he calls. Listen and obey. And I know sometimes that when he calls, it, it will be difficult to respond. It will require sacrifices. But don't be deceived by what you see, thinking that that looks better. It's not. Church, our golden calves are only distractions that will rob you. Their promises are false. Their meanings are empty. Don't lose sight of what God has given and so miss out on the things that he wants to entrust to you and give you as good gifts. He will take back all that we take for granted 
our faithlessness has consequences. But the good news is that our God does not take back that which he's given by a promise. Our God remains faithful to his promises even when we do not. And even more, even though a lion, he does not come to devour or slaughter us when we turn from him, but instead he sends and comes to us as a shepherd seeking to save. When Israel was consumed by what they thought was their own success, worshiping the gods their hearts devised, God responded by crying out for their return and sending a messenger in the form of a shepherd to bring them home. God sends Amos in the days of Jeroboam. And God sent Jesus in the days after, the one true king, the line of Judah, who did not come to condemn but to save, and who did, not, uh, who did so by humbling himself to become for us not just a good shepherd, but even more, the very lamb who died to take away the sins of the world. Listen to this, John 10, 11, 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand, the idol, is, is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Church, our idols care nothing for us. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as a father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep and they're not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from the Father. Guys, we're here this morning because our God is a good shepherd, not some hired hand. Our God is a living lion, not a dead cow. Our God is a good father who loves his children, is willing to turn servants and slaves into royal family and whose desire is for us to live and rule with him over a land of promise and prosperity. But as people, far too often we reject that call for ones that we think look better. And we try to rule without him or to worship things that our hearts devise. Yet that pursuit is exactly what makes our pastures mourn and our waters wither. The very things we look to for life bring death. But our God loves us so much that though in direct rebellion to him, he's willing to lay down his own life to sacrifice his perfect son to make a way for us to come home if we would only turn back to him. So this morning, we acknowledge how nearsighted we can be as a people, and we put on our corrective lenses to see all that we would have missed if we didn't have in view the history and the heart that God's message was in response to. So church, keep these glasses on as we continue through our study in Amos. And as we go, I hope our vision gets clearer and our ears more in tune to the voice of God as he speaks to us. For this morning, I hope that we can all leave here hearing God's roar like it was to Israel and to us. That we'd remember who our God is. 
What calling have you ignored to pursue what you think looks better? That would hear his, his roar to reject our golden cows. What calves have you created to worship? And that we'd hear his roar to return to your true home. God is a roaring lion calling for his family to come home. And he's also a good shepherd who seeks those who are lost. How will you respond to that roar? This was God's call then and is what it continues to be now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you that sometimes it takes work to understand it, Lord, that you loved us enough not to make it easy. Uh, that we can look back in your word and see um, how your people ha have developed throughout history, not just in their successes, Lord, but in their failures. Because in their failures, we see your faithfulness. Lord, we can confess today our failures, but we praise you for your faithfulness. Lord, guide us as we enter into this study over the rest of this, uh, these weeks to come. In your name we pray, amen.